Hey there, my name's Chris Rivers. I want to thank you for joining us today. And if this is your first time with us, welcome to the Equip Podcast. As we kick off 2022, our plan is to post an episode every other month. And our goal in each episode is to share discipleship practices to help advance the growth and success of the local church. In today's episode, we're going to hear a teaching from a 2019 Equip event from Matt Williams, who serves as one of the teaching pastors and governing elders at Grace. Church in Greenville, South Carolina. In this teaching, Matt helps us answer the question, what is the value of the local church? So with that said, let's listen in and hear this teaching and the unique role that the local church has for us. All right. So thank you for the elaborate clapping, celebrated, whatever. I don't know what that is. It's weird. I heard our staff clapping the other day in a meeting for something, and I was like, it's just so weird. I wanted to send a memo and say, please don't ever do that again. It's just not part of our culture. We don't believe in it. So my name is Matt Williams. I've been here uh, 22 years, almost 23 years. Um, this church is my wife's idea, and I was in agreement to come do this for 18 to 24 months. I mean, how hard can planning a church be? And so that's really what I thought. And by the time we got two, three years into it, I, it was in such a di- such disarray and uh, just so complicated. There's nobody would have wanted to be a part of it. But I, but from my side, I just felt. I wouldn't wish this on anybody. Like I couldn't in good conscience invite my worst enemy in to have to take this over. And it was that learning curve of trying to figure out what to do. Um, Some men in my life uh, were real helpful to say, hey, this is part of what you signed up to do. Um, But there's other people who will help you. And we've been blessed uh, so, so many times. And I made a list, a partial list for our congregation and used it in a sermon of all the churches in all the states that I could think of and all the leaders who had helped us. And so literally hundreds of times we have gone to other churches and to other leaders and asked for help. And I cannot think of a time when we've been told no. Um, there's one non-Christian businessman told me no um, a couple times, but that is the only one that I can think of. Churches have been so gracious to us. And so is, it feels presumptuous on one level for to say, hey, let's have a conference and invite people in. Because I agree with what David said. We're not trying to say, hey, here's Grace Church and here's the way to do it. But we have gone into other contexts that were extremely different than what we were doing. They were doing something and we could see that we were not supposed to copy that. But there was a principle there that could be real helpful for us. And so we've been really, really blessed. And there's a part of us that feels guilty and wants to give back in whatever way that we can. So um, let me pray for us and let's jump in. Father, we um, are grateful. We're grateful to be able to gather. We have a warm, safe, dry place uh, to be able to gather and to be able to share ideas and thoughts. And there's as much here to learn um, from Grace Church as there is for Grace Church. And between each of us and all these churches, there's a lot of ideas and thoughts to be shared. I pray that you would lead us into all truth, that you would give us wisdom that goes beyond our ability. And so we ask for your blessing on our time in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, One of the churches that was a huge blessing to us is the church that used to meet in this room. It's called Metropolitan Baptist Church. It was an, um, came out of a Bob Jones worldview, but not exactly Bob Jones, but it was the people that planted it came from that. They had leadership crisis and um, just deteriorated over a long period of time, and they were looking for another church to give it to. We had started in 95 and had set up and torn down our facilities for four years. And they called us and let us know that we were on the list of a number of ministries they were thinking about giving this to, and they were praying about it for a year. And uh, so they finally came and said, uh, why don't you come tour the building, and um, uh, we will talk about it because you may not want it. And so we wouldn't want to give it to you, and then you not, you not want it. 
I was like, I, bro, I can tell you right now. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't have to. I'll pray if you want me to, but I'm going to pray after I tell you we want it. And then I don't need to drive over there. Right? That'll be fine. But he's like, no, no, come see it because it might be too big of a burden. I was like, set up and tear down on Saturday night. That is a burden. Having a new building, we're going to learn about a new burden. And so he was a godly man. And we were, this was, it was oriented this way, three rows of pews facing that way. Uh, those stairs were hidden because that was baptismal boys, baptismal girls. And big stage um, right here where Gresham is, came all the way out right there. And so we were um, standing about where you are. And um, he said... Well, what do you think? I was like, yes. He said, no, no, no. He goes, I, we, he kept the conversation alive and as much as I was having a good time with it. And he said, um, there are no strings attached. And that's when I knew they, were, they had already decided to give it to us. He goes, there are no strings attached. And he said, but if I was going to attach a string, and he's you know, 30 years older than I was, and I was like, here it comes. He said, I would ask you to, to fill it up. He goes, look, there's no, there's no children running through here. There's no people here. He goes, it sits empty every weekend. He goes, this, this building, and Pelham Road wasn't quite what Pelham Road is now um, back then, but still, he said, this is a great part of town. He goes, it's, the halls are empty, bathrooms are empty. The, he goes, so we're going to protect the walls from getting scratched up. He goes, I think, well, why don't we fill it with people and just tear the walls up, just scratch it up, have, have it all ruined. He goes, I'll tell you what, I'll put together a team of people who come in and paint for you once a year. I mean, that was just his heart for it, and, and there were no strings attached, and he gave it to us, and I said, we're going to tear all this out, and he said, knock yourself out, and we did, and I just give you that as an illustration of this was one of the many churches that has helped us through the years, and if he wanted us to fill it up, and I felt like we could because we already had enough people to get one service kind of full in here, and then we added some services as we grew, having a permanent facility really helped with that. Um, but if he could see this moment, he died a few years ago of cancer, if he could see this, he would have had no category that we would be in partnership with churches all over. We hate Georgia, apparently, because there's nobody from there. But a church is in other areas where we are connecting, and, um, and they're helping us, and we're helping them, and it, it's, it's incredible. And I just, his name is Tom Proctor, and he is just a godly man who... Um, uh, sacrificed a lot in giving that building to us, this building to us. Um, there were people that cut him off because of the theological differences between who they were and who we are. He, got, he lost friendships over giving us this building. And so um, it's just one of the churches that really blessed us. Let's um, look together uh, at a few, few ideas. When we started this church, um, and I'm going to speak, we're going to speak in, in, in how we normally talk, very raw terms, which means you're going to hear some overstatement, particularly from Bill. That's the way he communicates. But we say it's biblical because Jesus spoke in hyperbole. So then just put it in that category if you need to. Whatever makes you feel better about it. Um, I do it too because what I'd rather do is communicate something real clearly. And then we have the clear idea. And then we can back off from it if we, if we want to. And so that's what you'll hear. So don't, don't let it put you off at certain times. So here's what I'll say. When we started this church, I didn't believe in local church. It's really not much of an overstatement. I mean, I believed it in its existence, but I thought there's Navigators, and there's Campus Crusade, and there's FCA, which I was a part of, and there's local church, and there's BSF, and there's, it, there's all these things. 
There's Dallas Seminary. There's Reform Seminary. To me, it was all really the same. I didn't, I didn't distinguish it. But it took about five or six years of teaching the Scriptures and, and working through and go, oh, there is something different about what God wants to do through the local church. It doesn't devalidate the existence of everything else and all the other parachurch ministries. But I had no real confidence and clarity around the value of the local church and the role that it plays and, and the unique role that it plays. And so one of the things that I've become... Um, clear, clearer on and, and impassioned about is when I'm with particularly young church planners is to helping infuse them with that idea of the clarity they have around what local church is and the value of it, how important it is. And that they should have, when they're communicating and, and developing ideas, they should have confidence around the local church. And it's, it's the thing that's been here the longest. Like empires have risen and fallen and local church is still here. I was listening last night to a guy who travels to Asia all the time talk about the local church and the, how the church is working in China. And it was a fascinating 15 minutes on just what, how powerful it is. And no matter how you squeeze it, it pops out the other side. And so I, that's what I would like to share with you. The, the, some clarity and confidence about the local church. Uh, the responsibility that we have to lead local church and what that means for shepherding and discipleship. And the authority. And I think those are the two things. We have a unique kind of responsibility. We have a unique kind of authority. When we started this church, a guy named Tom Fowler had been an elder for 18 years in Philadelphia was here as we were just starting. He knew everything. We knew nothing. And um, we would run into things and he would say, Matt, what are you going to do about that? I was like, I'm not going to do anything about that. He's like, you are responsible. The elders are responsible to shepherd them. It's your job to pursue her. It's your job to go meet with them. You need to go to his house tonight. You need to have a conversation about this. You need to pursue them. Your job is to shepherd the sheep. And he would point to passages and illustrate responsibility that I didn't really know. No one told me that we had that. And I didn't want really clear. And the other one is the authority piece. I think authority is what separates us from parachurch. Is that we have authority to lead. We have authority to shepherd. And I'll show you in a passage in a minute. We're going to be held accountable for the souls of the people that God brings to us. And so we have to take responsibility for that. And we have to measure out the authority given to us a number of years ago we had a guy named david who came to our church we were at clemson together uh, we were just acquaintances not really friends <clears throat> had a wife and a bunch of kids and came to our church for more than a year maybe close to two years and we would meet every once in a while had lunch every a couple times and but we would meet after a service or whatever and he, he was always on the fringe of our church never really getting involved never really serving not in community group um, not going through membership, not, not moving towards us at all. And I reached out to him. I had some other people reach out to him. And we just could not rein them in. So after a couple years, his wife left. And uh, she probably had some, you know, from her perspective, probably had some great reasons to leave. I don't know that he's the nicest person in the world uh, to have to live with. I wouldn't, I wouldn't vouch for him. But she left. So he calls me in a panic. And he's wanting help. His wife's in an apartment in town. Can you go meet with her? Can you take some people? Can you go get her? Bring her. We got to put our. We got these four or five kids. We got to put our family back together. He walks me through the whole thing, and I said, "Well, yeah. Let me see. Uh, you know, I will talk. Yeah, let me talk to some. Figure out someone. And we can give me. Because just call her. I was like, give me your number. I'll call her, and then we'll see about going to connect with her. And he can feel. I don't exactly know what to do, right? And I'm and I'm not gonna not do something. I don't. But I'm just trying to figure it out. It's all happening in the moment. I'm trying to figure out what. What am I supposed to do? And he starts, he's in a panic, he's manic, so he starts bearing down even harder. And so there was a point where it became offensive to me. 
So then I was like, oh, okay, I got you. And my, my flesh kicked in. If I had flesh, it kicked in just a little bit. And I said, I said, hang on. I said, no, what are you expecting? He goes, I, he goes, you, when I said that, it triggered in him. He goes, you are her pastor. You are my pastor. You have to go get her and put our family back together. And I'm simplifying what he said, but those are words that he said. I said, hang on. I said, I'm not your pastor and I'm not her pastor. For two years you've been around our church. You have not moved towards membership. In fact, you have trained your wife to not put herself under authority. You have told her that the church is here at her disposal when she wants it and when she doesn't want it. It's available to her if and when she wants it, but she's not under anybody's authority. She's not being shepherded and cared for because she's not accountable to anybody. I was like, you taught her that. What will I do in this moment to go unteach what you have been teaching her this whole time? And he goes, I just need you to help me get my wife back. I was like, fair enough. As long as we're clear that this is what we're dealing with, right? And so I, there's no way for me to go undo all the work that he had done. I'm irrelevant to her. Because he told her, that's not your pastor. He didn't say it. But he's like, we go to church when we want to. We're involved to the level that we want to. If there's stuff here to take, we'll take it. But we're not contributing. We're not giving. We're not a part. And so I think that's part of the consumeristic culture that we're in. That's part of what we're managing. That's part of what we're dealing with. Now, how we get there, we all get to figure that out, right? We all get, and you probably have stories very similar to what I just shared. And But how we get there and how we leverage up, connect to people, draw them in, make them apart, that's the thing that we got to figure out, and we all do it a little bit differently. Turn to Acts 20, verse 20, and I want to just quickly read to you three passages then I want to give you some of the some things that we're doing with people on the front end when they start to go through a membership class or before a membership class. Just not for you to do that, but for you to see how we're trying to shepherd people on the front end. But <clears throat> to reiterate the responsibility and the authority piece, Acts 20, verse 28. There's actual Bibles in the room. That is fascinating. Still cutting down trees. There are still some Bibles in existence. Amazing. Acts 20, verse 28, this is Paul talking to the Ephesian elders, and I fully recognize the audience I'm talking to, right? That y'all do this, right? So and that's why I'll talk a little bit faster with the assumption that you, this is what you do all the time. You could be teaching all this so we can move at a better clip. So if I talk too fast, then you'll be like, oh, no, I already know what this means. Verse 28, Paul says to these Ephesian elders, he goes, watch over yourselves and the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. There's a number of things here that I think are important. Just watch yourselves. The health of these elders, that they don't turn away, that they stay faithful, that's real important. It's determinative to, for the flock, which is interesting for us. It's not really my topic for today, but I couldn't let it go on the moment. For us to want to want things for our congregation that we don't have for ourselves, it's weird. For us to have expectations for things to be happening in our flock that's not happening among us as leaders, that is a weird form of hypocrisy. To be able to say, we want people to do this, we want them to do this, we want this, and some of those genuine, authentic expressions of growth and unity are not even common among us as leaders. Right? Doesn't mean there's not going to be conflict, doesn't mean there's not going to be terrible issues to deal with, but that we have a, a dynamic fabric of faith that is unifying us and growing us also. So he says, watch over yourselves. He goes and watch over the flock of which God made you overseers. And so when my dad was the oldest of three siblings, so when my dad would leave, my mom would go out of town, they put me in charge of my two younger siblings. 
It was a delegated authority. It was temporary responsibility, but I was given that. I was made an overseer, and the big words are delegated authority, right? And a temporary responsibility. He goes, you were made overseers by someone else. He goes, that you would be shepherds of the church of God. And so it's interesting, and, this is, and so this is where we'll talk about some things that we, that we need to nuance. And I'll hope you hear it when we say, this is this, but it's also this. There's some, there's some tension here. When I talk to church leaders and I talk to church planters, particularly church planters that are young and idealistic, the phrase that you hear over and over, I was like, what, what are you going to do? We're going to love the city. We're going to reach the city. And I'm like, and I mean, that's so awesome, Tim Kellerish, and got to be true. And maybe we write that into the back of the Bible. Something, but I'm like, and so when I say, after about 50 times of hearing it, I finally looked at a dude one day. I said, where do you get that? And with pride, he goes, Jeremiah 29. I was like, so that's one of the two passages in Jeremiah that we know, right? That one in chapter 31. I said, I hear you. Is it true? It's true. I said, but can I challenge you a little bit on that? That is a true idea. And I heard Tony Evans say it when I was at Dallas Seminary. He's the first one I ever heard talk about that back in 1992. But when you take that passage of love the city, reach the city, which is important. Go into all nations, make disciples of all nations, right? When you stack that up against the number of passages and verses that say, shepherd the flock that you were made overseers over. Care for these people. Teach them, train them. I mean, it's not even, and it's not that throw this to the side of reach the city. We want to reach the city, right? We want to reach people. We want to love that. But, we, but our major call is to shepherd these people and to lead them and care for them. And I recognize when I say that, it raises all kinds of challenging questions, which we'll, we'll deal with some of that. Because the, the pendulum can swing too far one direction or the other. But we spend so much time talking about strategies for growing our churches and not near enough time, in my opinion, if you look at the weight of Scripture, not near enough time talking about strategies for how we shepherd and care for people. And I think some of that is there's more affirmation for pastors who are seeking to grow a church to larger numbers than there is in pastors who are shepherding people. I think when you, when you go, what, where do I get affirmed the most? One outweighs the other. And I recognize some of you in this room are great friends of mine and you come from backgrounds where it was us four and no more. So I recognize you got baggage on the other side. But that's okay. That's what we need to talk about. We need to talk about some balance on all that. And that last phrase, he goes, bought with his own blood. It's a graphic idea and it illustrates the value that these sheep, these children are God's children and we have to care for them. C.S. Lewis mentions in a couple of his works where if you could see people in their eternal state, you'd be tempted to worship them. Hebrews 13, 17. Turn there real quick. This is a passage that we share with um, a lot of our people or all of our people when they're coming in, in what we call Discovery, which is a pre-membership class, and in Foundations, which is a membership class. We want to get this out there. It's tough at first to read because it, it makes you feel a little bad as a church leader. feels like your hands are dirty. In um, Hebrews 13, verse 17, he goes, Obey your spiritual leaders and do what they say. So when you're the spiritual leader, it's a little awkward moment. We generally just blow through that part real fast. It says, Their work, the spiritual leaders, their work is to watch over your souls 
and they are accountable to God. And that's the part we want to hone in on. That these leaders watch over your soul, so that's the responsibility, and they're accountable to God. Give them reason to do this with joy and not with sorrow. In other words, don't get caught up challenging them on every single thing. Don't be petty. That would certainly not be for your benefit. So we are treading lightly on obey your leaders because it sounds authoritarian. But we quickly want to jump to watch over your souls for they are accountable to God. And so we want to tell people right when they're coming into our church that this is something that's important to us and we value is that we want to, this is a discipleship moment that we're trying to communicate to them. So the two things that we had to get clear on, the first one was 15 years ago, we didn't really start out with the intention of doing church membership. You know, I think most everybody does church membership. I'm sure all of you do. For us, church membership was just a, a construct, a practical construct, so we can know who we're responsible for. If I've got to be accountable for the souls, I guess I need to know who that is. Are they here? Are they with us? We had a bunch of young people when we started out, and they were transient going everywhere and it just felt like how am I being responsible for people that aren't connected here that aren't really serious about being in our church so we had to work through the membership process and some of our people bucked up and were like I mean this is not biblical and I said well neither is the sound system that's not biblical either but it just helps us get done what we're trying to do and so the the construct of a of membership helped us with the shepherding and discipleship. That's what we would say. The bigger challenge in recent years we had to come to terms with was who is what we call, this is a technical term in our context, who's the responsible pastor? That's the technical word, responsible pastor. Now, for so like some of you, you're the only pastor in your church, so you're like, I know who the responsible pastor is. But here's what I would challenge you on that. Well, I was living in that season too. But a board of elders, those elders are pastors, pastors are elders, and so even when we had just me and a board of elders, we shared that responsibility. And it was painful at times because people had some expectations of me and we had to unpack all that and be real honest about here's how we're sharing all that. But in our context, as our church grew and we had other pastors on staff, we realized that we had people who didn't feel like they had a pastor and we had pastors who needed to be more connected to that responsibility of shepherding. And so one of the applications in our context now is that every covenant member of our church has at least one pastor's cell phone in their phone. Is that they, and they know, if, you, if I were meeting someone, ran into someone at a restaurant downtown, and I could say, who's your responsible pastor? They're supposed to be able to tell me. Chad Clint is my responsible pastor, and I have his cell phone. So not calling the church office, talking to the administrative assistant, and he'll take a message, let him know, he'll get back to you in a couple of days. None of that, all that's cut out. Because see, our church is larger, so everybody's looking for an opportunity to say, well, a big church can't keep up with all the people who can't do this. So we had to just wipe out any kind of bureaucracy, any kind of structural things that would get in the way. We had to just say, if you're a member of this church, you have a pastor's cell phone in your phone that you could call at any minute, day or night. And it doesn't, I don't think it gets abused. I don't think, well, some of the guys in the back might disagree, but that's what we had to do. So that's how we said we're going to live this out. Accountable to God meant that we had to get clear on who we're responsible for and then who are the pastors who are responsible, who's the responsible pastor. And so Exodus 18 is the division of responsibility. Acts 6 shows the division of responsibility. Philippians 1, to the saints in Ephesus, to the elders and the deacons, shows division of responsibility. Um, Titus 1, for this reason I left you in Crete, that you might appoint elders in every city. 
See, I mean, that we, we, we got patterns of where we're sharing responsibility and drawing people in. Shepherding, this being accountable to God, is, a, is, a, is very nicely worded for us because shepherding quickly gets equated to doing what people want us to do and pleasing them, making them happy. If I can remember that shepherding these people, that I am accountable to God for what happens, then I'm making decisions for them, sometimes that really makes them feel good and goes their way, and sometimes does not. But the grid is not what makes them happy or what makes me happy, what makes me tired, what makes me rested. It's about what would God want me to do for these people. And one day, theoretically, I would stand in front of him. Well, not theoretically, he says you're going to give an account. You've got to give an account for how we handled that. So that's the grid, not just not ignoring people and not obeying them either. Um, last one, 1 Timothy 4. This is on, more on the discipleship side of things. 1 Timothy 4, 11 through 16. Paul says to Timothy, I do think it's interesting that the pastoral epistles get labeled as such and get written off. Well, that's just the pastors. That's not. And, and I do think we, there, there's a lot of things in here that are helpful for pastors, but for our churches, for our leadership. But anyway, Paul says to Timothy, teach these things. So teach, insist that everyone learn them. I think that's an interesting idea, is that you would find a way to prevail upon these people. You can teach them, and then it's not that you taught and they were able to ignore it. It's that you find a way to prevail upon them. You insist that they learn. Don't let anyone think less of you because you're young. Be an example to all believers in what you say, in the way you live, the love, your faith, the purity, so there's a lifestyle to back it up. Until I get there, focus on, notice this, Reading the scriptures to the church looks very corporate. Encouraging the believers, teaching them. Notice this, the work. It's teaching, insisting, reading, encouraging, teaching again. Here's what I take away. Is that people's souls need to be nourished. Now this is complicated. You wouldn't think. It seems like a simple idea. But one of the things that we're struggling with is where's the line between nourishing people's souls and creating spiritual consumers who say, I need to learn more, I need to be taught more. And so with the seeker movement and some of our friends in, in and around, well, around the country that, we, that, that I know, their argument to me was, they're not, not arguing, their explanation was, people know plenty, they don't need to learn anymore. What they need to do it's just hear what we're saying, go out and do it, and then go find more people and bring them to church. That's what they need to do. We're creating an incredible experience for people to hear the gospel and what their job is to give, serve a little, but go get people and bring them to the church. And so people already know plenty. They're not even doing what they know. So is there truth in that statement? There is truth in that statement. Is there, like DTS, where I came from, there are churches in Dallas that it feels like a lot of people are overfed. They are taught, and they are taught, and they are taught, and they are taught, and they don't do anything with it. But I don't think the reaction is, stop teaching people. I don't think that's healthy. And just say, go work, go serve, go bring more people in. This passage acknowledges that the soul must be fed, must be nourished, even with the errors that can happen on either side. And I would also say, and I harp on this all the time with our staff, much of this kind of teaching is not happening on the weekends. The insisting, the prevailing upon people, the connecting to them, to being close enough to ask hard questions, 
and meet them where they are. And so uh, where this first happened to me, and so Foad and Karen Ferris have been friends of ours since we were in college, live in New Hampshire. Uh, Foad did this for me my senior year at Clemson. I'd gotten married after my junior year. He was on staff with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. I went up to him. I knew I was in over my head. With being married and some ministry stuff I was doing on campus, and I said, hey, would you disciple me? He's like, yeah, meet me at Shoney's. He lived in Gaffney. I lived in Clemson. Meet me in Shoney's at Greenwood, whatever, 6 o'clock or 5.30 or 6.30, whatever it was. And I thought, good gracious. Why is discipleship got to have so early? I mean, and so we entered into a relationship where it was the, we use this phrase, life on life. It was the original life on life experience for me, where I had someone teaching me training me, insisting, prevailing. I'd come in, I'd have my questions. I'd be like, hey, what do you think about whatever? He'd be like, well, you know, it's really not that important what I think about that. I mean, I'll tell you what I think, but what's really important is what does the Bible say? I'd be like, man, that dude's obsessed with the Bible. (laughs) And so he would. He'd drive me into the scriptures and say, this is what God says. And this is really important. Here's how I think we can apply this. He'd ask questions about my marriage. He'd say, don't, can't ever say that to her again. Don't do that. I, by the end of a year, I knew not, not how much he gave, but I knew how he gave and where he gave and why he gave. I knew his work ethic. I knew the disciplines that he had in his spiritual life. I got to see his marriage and how he treated his wife. I knew the books that he read one time. I knew the books that he read every single year. The irony is it was not in a church context. The thing that the church and that pastors are supposed to be providing, I was having to go outside the local church to find that. He was having to operate outside the local church. And it's interesting that the responsibility and the authority that was given to the local church to make disciples, it's a river flowing downstream where the Holy Spirit is pouring in one direction that we can join that. Rather than having to swim upstream, which you have to do with so many other contexts, so many other ministries. I mean, this is what we've been called to do is nourish believers. So it does raise the question, what do you do about growth? Here's what I would say about this. I got no problem with advertising and marketing your church. and We don't really do any of that. We have a website. I guess that's what that is. We used to be in the Yellow Pages. I don't even know if we're in the Yellow Pages anymore. I don't know if the Yellow Pages even exist anymore. I don't know. Right? So I don't have any problem with communicating who you are and advertising, marketing, whatever you want to call it. But we don't do very much of that at all. What I would tell you, though, is consistently the most powerful thing. It's not trying to create an amazing experience at church and have people go out and talk about that experience. What is more powerful is seeing someone's life change that you work with or that lives in your neighborhood. That creates a wake that scoops people up. The illustration we use is of the 29-year-old woman. She's got a couple kids and a husband. They're trying to figure out how to raise those kids and take care of each other and keep this marriage together and work and make enough money to survive in this culture. And What happens is when she comes to a worship service, if she'll respond to what she hears, her life will move just slightly, one degree. And then maybe she goes to a women's study that we have called a Zare she gets in regen or re-engage, I mean, anything where they're life-on-life discipleship. And every time she hears truth, her life moves just ever so slightly. You can't even really see it. She's not even aware of it. It's happening on such a deep level, she's not even aware of the movement. But over the course of three to five years, she has moved from one degree many, many degrees over. 
And then that has changed the trajectory of her life. So now, when you walk it out three to five years, it's vastly different. So the people that she works with, the people that she lives with, the people in the neighborhood see her, they knew her from before, they see her as a dramatically different person than who she was. Or when they encounter her for the first time, they're like, this is a powerful young woman. And, it, and, and what, what, what I want is that. Because that lasts for her whole life and what she pours into her children and to her husband and all the people that she'll ever meet. Whether it ever has anything to do with Grace Church or not, we've made a disciple that has long-lasting impact. What I would rather have is that woman living that way, this markedly different after three to five years, than some man or woman who goes to work and says, you should hear my pastor. Amazing sermon yesterday. You need to get online and hear what my pastor said yesterday. Or you should go to our church. This is an incredible worship experience. Like, these two things are not even comparable. Raving over a great sermon, I mean, I got, I got some great sermons. Because the sheer volume of what I've done, there's got to be a couple that are good. I got a vast, a vast array that are not good. And but I got a ton that are mediocre, and that's just where I live, right? This is what I got. And I, but I don't need someone going to work and to the you got to hear my pastor and this great sermon. you got to come to our great church. What, I, what I'd rather them do is not be impressed with me, her talking about who I am, is that people be looking at her going, look at this life. Look at this young man's life. Look at how powerful he is, how composed he is, how aware of himself. This guy follows Jesus. This woman follows Jesus. Now that does in turn breed a lot of good things for our church. Where'd you get this? How'd you come to this? And so they do get swept up into our church. And I would say that life change is a great tool and a great mechanism for growing a church, although you can't pursue it. It's like looking at the sun. You can't stare at it directly. It'll corrupt you, right? It's got to happen indirectly. It's got to be a byproduct, which I'm not saying at all. Don't ever promote something that you're doing. That's not what I'm saying. But the heart and soul of outreach really, I think, comes best through life change. So, Take a moment. Let's think about this. Um, what I would want for you, one of the things I would want for you, is the, is the goal for you to figure out how are we reaching people, shepherding them, discipling them? How do we do that in the way that is unique to us? Rather than looking, here's how everybody else is doing it. Go on a deep dive and do soul searching and think, but who, who are we? How do we process information? How do we view the world? Because however we do that, there's other people like us out there. I don't know how many there are out there. But I know that we represent something. Like this thumbprint of our church represents something. And God uses the multicolored, the multifaceted aspects of who he is and his grace to reach a variety of people. And so one of the things that we try to do is begin this process as early as possible with people. So when people come to our service, if I had my way, the first thing, when they come in the door, they would see what we call a life change video. 30 seconds, 60 seconds, sometimes two minutes. Two minutes feels too long. But them just talking about, not necessarily when they came to faith, maybe, but just could be any part of their life that's changing and growing. And it sends the overt and the subliminal message that people go, so if you come to church here, these people think that your life should be changing. Like, we want to send that message. For those who have ears to hear and eyes to see, we want them to see it overtly. And for those that are hardened, we want it slipping in subtly. These people are all about change. They think you should be changing, they should be growing. That's an expectation that they have. 
And even when we're teaching, we're teaching believers, but we're addressing non-Christians. If you're a non-Christian, you might think this way, you might feel this way. We're trying to say that. But one of the things that really helps on the front end when people come in the door, we have found is to create language that represents who we are. Now, now listen to what I'm saying. Not language that represents who they are. It's irrelevant who they are. Who they are is lost. Who they are is confused. Now, this may not be the church for them, but let's don't create language to try to get people into our church. Let's create language that explains to people who we are. Because we have a sovereign God who's organizing all this. And we've done the deep dive and we've searched our soul and said, this is what's important to us. And if you understand this, if you can resonate with this, then this is the place for you. So we put together a handful of words that we introduce to people in discovery. We call them distinctives. Because we don't know what else to call them. They're really not that distinctive. Like you do all the, everything I'm going to say, almost everything I'm going to say, most of you would have, you would be communicating this. But the question is, is are you communicating the things that you really do feel passionately about? Not everything you feel passionate about. The few things that you feel passionate about, and you communicate them in language that's yours, that makes sense to you, that represents, that kind of connects to your ethos, to your soul, to what you think and to what you feel. And so ours is always awkward. We always present kind of awkward, obscure language, almost always. So I'm going to give you our five words. The words are not important. They're not, I would never want you to take these words and go use them. One, one because I'm so prideful, I don't want you using our words. Number two, it's just, it wouldn't be that helpful to you, right? And, it's gonna, and it just wouldn't be, it wouldn't be who you are. And so if you want to use them, use them. I was just kidding about that, but you haven't gravitated to my sense of humor, which may be because it's not that good. But the first one, we, when, when someone's sitting in our discovery class, and this is a big funnel class where we invite people in and we say, hey, come learn about Grace Church. It's an open door that doesn't close behind you. You come to this class. And so I would say, what, do we know the number? 50% of people who go through discovery say, out. Is that about right? Daniel, what would you say? A little higher? Okay. So there have been times when it was lower than that. There's times when it's higher than that. So, but, some, but a significant portion of people who come to Discovery say, that's eh, not really my church. So the first word we share with them was say, around Grace Church, we want to be biblicist. I guarantee you they hadn't heard that word. <laughs> biblicist means that we believe the Bible has authority. We believe that um, when the phrase that we use is it, it, it when we think about the Scriptures, we are defined and directed by the Scriptures. Defined means that the Bible teaches that we're fallen and sinful, and we're separated from God, separated from each other, and we, He sent His Son Jesus to die for us. And so in, by putting our faith in Him, not our work and our energy and our will towards Him, but by putting our faith in Him, He redeems us, makes us new, reconciles us to Himself and to each other. And in Him we have new life, hope, and a future. And so that's how the Scriptures define us, as broken people who need to be redeemed or who are redeemed. That's how the scriptures define us. And then it directs us. And it's what we believe is, is that when you hear teaching, you should respond to it. Whether it's a sermon, Bible study, community group, when you hear truth, that you should respond to that. And we want to be a culture of responders. And so we got a handful of other things that we talk about under being biblicists, but you get the idea. We're trying to tell them this is, this is, who we, this is what we think, this is what we feel. Second idea is plurality. This is important to us. We have a plurality of elders. We don't have a senior pastor. Um, our elders, our governing elders, work by consensus, all in, all out. It's a complicated way to lead a church, but it's has worked for us. Some of our governing elders are non-staff. Some of them are on staff. 
So we talk about all that. We also say that we have shepherding elders who are leading on the campuses. Who are, their job is to care for you. They're on the front lines of doing ministry in our church. They are elders. They are pastors also. We talk about all that. We have plurality in our teaching team. So Matt Williams teaches 24, 25 times weekends a year. There's other things for him to do. We talk about what pastors do when they're not teaching and why we do that, why we have um, a teaching team and why we use video and live teaching. We talk about all that. And that plurality is helpful for us so that everything is not filtered through one personality and it's a great way to train new, younger leaders. Third idea, that we're a family of congregations. What we used to call multi-site and then I think we snaked from Midtown. We like the way they said it. So... um, We are one church in multiple locations. We share elders. We share a budget. We share teaching. We share philosophy. But we are divided into the local communities. We have unity without uniformity. Once again, using a combination of live and video teaching, we have found that when you break big things into small pieces, it's easier to get people to own that. And in owning it, the value of discipleship and leadership development goes through the roof. Anything that gets broken into smaller pieces, people own it better, which means discipleship goes up, and it means leadership development goes up when it's in smaller pieces. We've seen it over and over and over. Um, and it's in their local community. That's easy to own too. Fourth idea is formational. Ephesians 4, uh, we want to be an equipping church. This is what we're aspiring to, that we would uh, train people, that we would equip them to do the work of the ministry. We want people to think in terms of process more than event. And we have a lot of events. But we want to think about process. It's why we don't have an altar call. And we walk through the theological and philosophical reasons why we don't do an altar call. We talk about why we don't take up an offering. And we have theological kind of mostly philosophical reasons why we don't take up an offering publicly. And how you own your faith and you have to make a decision and um, that whole thing. Right? And so we'll talk about why we want you in groups so that you learn how to apply truth in communities. So we'll talk about that. We'll talk about how you develop a lifestyle of repentance. And so for people that are coming in our door, all this is brand new. I mean, very few of our people coming in, they may have come from a great church in St. Louis, and so some of this is resonating, but most of our people, they're like, oh, that's interesting, I hadn't really thought about that. The fifth one is sacrificial. The heart of the gospel is sacrificial that Jesus gave himself for you. He calls us to follow him, give your life away, Luke 9, 24, Matthew 16, 26. We want to be on day one communicating. We as a church will call you to sacrifice, to give your time, to give your money, to give your energy, to be a part of serving in some way, to be a part of a community group, to learn how to be generous. We know that most of you have not come from a culture of generosity and learned how to give, and we want to teach you how to engage the culture, how you give your life away to people around you. So that's just, what, that's just how we are doing that. So I would say the language that you are using, what I would ask you, a couple questions, the language that you're using with people early on, is it your language... And is it helping you in the discipleship process? That's the grid. Every time we communicate, every way, whenever we're thinking through something, how does this help us make disciples? Is this helping us make disciples? Or, because what you've got to worry about in our, con- in our context, just like yours, is a membership class just becomes something to get people through. Just give them to membership and get them in. And I would say we uh, rethink that idea that membership is a huge discipleship opportunity. And even the moments before a membership class are tremendous discipleship opportunities. And are we acknowledging that not everybody can be made a disciple? I mean, theoretically they can, right? But not practically. And there are other churches in our community where we have to send people all the time. Like, I think 
Horizon's a better fit for you. I think Mitchell Road might be a better fit for you. Brookwood might be a better fit for you. And then one of the other things that we'll do is we will offer, this is, let me show you how, how much tension there is in this. We're trying to combat against spiritual consumerism, and then at the end of this discovery class, we want to say, now here are the benefits of being a part of local church. Do not get into local church for the benefits of it, but here are the benefits. All right? So we do try to say this. Don't be a consumer, but here are the things that would make your life better if you did become slightly a consumer by joining our church. The number one is, is community. We make the case, we're trying to make the case that life change happens in community. People can hear the truth on the weekend and just walk out, but if you're in a group, most everybody in a group has a much better opportunity to grow in their faith. And we'll say, because of community of the local church, you have people to care for you during the most difficult times of life, which people in midlife really want to hear. People in their 20s and early 30s think that is ridiculous because they haven't had that many difficult times. But here's what most people in our context are thinking, and I imagine in yours too, is that I don't really need community right now. And so it'll be here when I need it. And so I have, with some of our folks, been trying to work on language to kind of deconstruct that kind of thinking. That as a church, the church's job is that we don't fix anything. We build. And building takes time. If you come to us, you ignore the church with your 5-year-old. Come back in 10 years with your 15-year-old who's crazy. We don't fix that. We're going to rally we're going to go to the hospital with you. We're going to help you get counseling. We're going to stay up all night with you. But I'm just going to tell you right now, we're not going to fix it. We never have. We have no track record of, of really fixing. The fixing that we've done can be explained a thousand other ways, not because of us. So we're not fixing, but we are building. So if you'll start now, we can help build something. Eight years ago, I planted two dogwoods in my yard. One at the front of my driveway and run one farther up in my driveway. And I didn't realize at the time, the one farther up in the driveway, it's right next to a kind of a, a, a small field. And the guy I bought the house from had a um, sprinkler system, which I left there. It comes out of a well, so it runs all the time. So the sprinkler system, that sprinkler is malfunctioning, and so instead of just going 180 in the field, it goes 270. So it comes all the way around and sprays into the edge of the woods, which is where one of those dogwoods is. So now for eight years, that dogwood has had water sprayed on it most every morning. And it is five times the size of the other dogwood at the front of the driveway. Here's what I'm telling you. There's nothing you can do about that now. You cannot go back in time and change, make these two things equal. One of those dogwoods looks like a real tree that one of my children can climb, and the other looks like something that still has to be protected is real vulnerable when it snows. I mean, that other one, one's this big, one's huge. You, you go, well, this tree over the course of eight years has had a thousand extra gallons of water poured on it. So let's get a thousand gallons of water and let's come over here and pour it on this little tree. It's not going to do, it's going to destroy it, right? There's no way to undo what has been done. This tree has been fed and nurtured in a way that it is now powerful and strong, but it took eight years of work. This one has been ignored. And there's nothing to do now to make this strong like this. And that is what community is. And that is the way we got to find a way to communicate that to people. That the crisis, it's not if we're going to have a crisis, 
The crises are coming. Will we allow the church, will we help build the church and let the church help build us so that we are ready for all of that and then be in community when it happens, not scrambling for people to solve our problems and fix us when we get to that place. So we are offering to them formative and corrective discipline along the way that makes them strong. The second one is it's community, benefit of the church, and then next gen. We want to work together to build the next generation. All of our children and students, children basically come to us as non-Christians. We have all these children and students to lead to Christ. We have all these children and students to do it. Most parents feel very inadequate as parents, and so this is an opportunity to partner with them in the local church to help build their children and build their students. And so most people find that very attractive, and it is a true, valid, significant part of what we're doing as local church. And then the third idea is to engage the mission of the local church. Is that the flow of redemption from Jesus is into the church, but it is also through the church into the world. And so we want to highlight that and say, you get to be a part of something bigger than yourself. You, you can do, you, you are responsible to do ministry on your own, but you're also responsible to be part of the local church, a body that is doing ministry that you cannot do by yourself. So for us, when someone, and we say this, when you give money, this is what we're doing with it. And we try to highlight that all the time. We're going to talk about that in the generosity talk. But that you're giving money, and so when you give here, and we just, we'll highlight this. I said this a few weeks ago. Then you're helping recruit, train, and launch people into the world of fostering and adoption, which is one of the most difficult issues in our state and in the upstate. So when you give here, that's what you're giving to. Even if you're not doing fostering and adopting, you're playing because we're one body. When you are in Powdersville and you are taking care of a, a class, a small class of children, because their single parents are in divorce care, you're taking care of these children on a Tuesday night while the parents are in a care group called divorce care. You are also training pastors in Kenya. You're like, I've never been to Kenya. Right. But you're serving in one part of the body, and the other part of the body's doing that. So we're all doing all these things together. And you get to be a part of something that's not just about you, it's bigger than you. So that's what I wanted to say. It, it really boils down to confidence and clarity about the role of the local church and that we have something for people and we need, to, we need to be clear about it and we need to be confident when we communicate it and find ways to communicate it and prevail. Well, as we wrap up today's episode, I want to thank you for joining us. Be sure to check out the show notes for any resources shared. And make sure to head on over to gracechurchsc.org forward slash equip if you have any questions. There you can access coaching opportunities, additional resources, and upcoming equip events. All right, see you next time on the Equip Podcast.